Broadcasting from the Superbook Sports Studios, KTUS AM 1060, Tempe, Phoenix, and KSLX HD2, Scottsdale, Phoenix. It's time to hit the field with Extra Point, featuring Kayla Mortolaro and Bob Kemp on KDUS AM 1060. Tweet the show at KDUS AM 1060 or give us a call at 602-260-1060. The snap is back. The hold is down. You can't miss with this combination. And the Extra Point is good. Welcome in to Extra Point right here on KDOS AM 1060. As always, follow along with us online at KDOS1060.com and with the KDOS 1060 app powered by Superbook Sports. It's Thursday. It's May 18th. Bob Camp, Kayla Mortolaro with you up until noon today, as we typically do Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. PGA Championship from Oak Hill underway there was an hour, over an hour-long frost delay, so those cold temperatures that we were talking about with Alex Myers yesterday, prevalent to begin today's round, but action is underway. So we'll uh, get into a little bit about the PGA Championship as the show goes on, Eastern Conference Finals, Western Conference Finals. It's all happening here in the Extra Point, but let's first set the scene with today's poll questions, and we'll start with the KDOS1060.com poll question. Who do you have ATS in? In game two tonight, Lakers plus five and a half or Nuggets minus five and a half. And the Nuggets out in front, 67% of the vote. Lakers trailing at 33%. Betting market is saying otherwise. Uh, doesn't mean the betting market is right, but uh, you know, the Lakers opened you know, six and a half at a couple of places uh, in this game, and it's down to roughly five and a half pretty much everywhere at this point. Uh, so, uh, like I said, the, you know, at least the, the market is saying otherwise. And like I said, the market's not always right, needless to say. But uh, they think that the Lakers will bounce back tonight and at least cover the number. We'll answer this question around 1130 today. Over on Twitter at KDUS AM 1060, do you now expect the Heat to win the series against the Celtics? The Heat took game one last night. Yes, leading the way at 60% of the vote. No trailing at 40%. Once again, just using the market, uh, the betting market is kind of a kind of a, a, a barometer here. You know, the Celtics. There were a couple of places they opened eight and a half uh, after last night's game, and that immediately went up to nine. I even saw a couple of nine and a halfs. So it now seems to be kind of leveling out at nine uh, throughout the uh, worldwide markets as far as the uh, the wagering on this game. So, at least in game two, that doesn't mean they're going to win. They got to you know. Obviously, that nine's a big number, but uh, they at least the betting market believes that uh, the Celtics are going to you know, bounce back and have a, a better performance. I think it's safe to say in Game Two than they did in Game One. Uh, well, so we'll answer that question as well around 11:30. Still time for you to cast your vote over on Twitter at KDUS AM 1060. Let's start with that game last night. The Miami Heat going into Boston, taking game one, 123-116. to Jimmy Butler, magic once again, 12 of 25, 9 of 10 from the foul line, 35 points, 7 assists, 5 rebounds, and 6 steals. Bam Adebayo added in 20 points in the bench, 15 each from Caleb Martin and Kyle Lowry. As for the Celtics by the numbers, Jason Tatum, 30 points, 9 of 17, 11 of 11 from the foul line. Two key traps calls late in the fourth quarter and no shot attempts for him in the fourth as well. Jalen Brown, 22 points, 10 of 21. Bench points for the Celtics. Malcolm Brogdon, 19 points on 7 of 14 from the floor. And Derek White adding in 11 points. 
You, you mentioned the no-shot attempts. Um, among other things, i got a lot of stuff here. I'll get to a couple of things right now. They're now, they being the Celtics, an inexplicable 4-4 four and four at home during the postseason. Uh, they gave up 46 points in the third quarter and 123 for the game. And I don't think anybody's surprised that this was a coaching you know, mismatch because I think most people believe that's going to happen. But I don't understand what is Missoula doing. Uh, you know, he's delivering possibly the worst, certainly one of the worst, uh, coaching performances in the postseason collectively in you know, three series ever. Uh, last night, not calling timeouts during that third quarter onslaught. Uh, you know, you mentioned uh, no shots in the fourth quarter for, you know, for uh, for you know, Tatum. Um, they didn't even run the ball. They, they didn't run plays for Tatum. Get him the ball. He just scored 51 in the previous game. Yeah, he had uh, you know, three field goal attempts, missed them all, had three turnovers, as you mentioned. He wasn't good, but it seemed like – yeah. Yeah, the, the, uh, Van Gundy, Stan Van Gundy, said a number of times accurately during the fourth quarter is, you know, you know Miami's running their offense through Butler, and you know, Boston's not running their offense through Tatum. And then after the game, Missoula was often, I think, confrontational as being maybe too, I'm sliding it a little bit. He was an asshole, basically. Excuse me. He was an ass after the game. Uh, he basically blamed the players with frequency when he was asked really legitimate questions about his game strategy. It, 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 his performance after the game and the post game was almost worse than what he did or didn't do during the game. Uh, yeah, so, you know, uh, along these lines here as well, from just a production standpoint, the game certainly turned in that third quarter. Uh, and also, just from a points perspective, Miami comes out 46 points, Boston 25. Shots weren't falling for Boston. Miami hitting their shots. Boston not playing as solid of defense here as well. What contributed to it, assist to turnover ratio. In the first half, you had Boston with 15 assists and just five turnovers, and that turned on a dime there in the second half which is seven assists and 10 turnovers. Uh, to, to your point, though, certainly something flipped a, a switch there heading into the second half, and adjustments were made for the Heat and no adjustments uh, correctly for the Celtics. Well, that can't be too surprising because, you know, Missoula is just showing more and more throughout the playoffs that he's just incapable of being a competent NBA head coach. And uh, last night, just the latest example you know, if if you were a, if this were a court of law, you'd be running out of exhibits to actually prove your point. Um, he he's pretty close to clueless, I think, at this point, and uh, just his arrogance, which is a, I forgot who used that word last week when uh, we had a number of NBA guests, not even before last week, but recently when we were talking about Missoula, he used the word arrogance. And uh, that's exactly him. And he's done nothing to be arrogant. You know, not that arrogance is a good thing, but if you're going to be arrogant, you should have something to stand on uh, in your career, uh, accomplishments, etc., to act like that. And he's done nothing to act like anybody. Uh, he's done nothing to act like he has so far. Um, it's just I, I'm kind of mystified by the whole thing. Obviously, you know, Butler 
you know, they ran the offense through him, uh, 35 points. He had 20 after halftime, seven assists, six steals. Some of those are guarding Tatum, actually, uh, and five rebounds. And, and as he actually, he was you know, the one responsible for guarding Tatum for much of the fourth quarter. They didn't really put him on Tatum that much before the fourth quarter, but he didn't really have to, you know, it didn't matter who he, who was guarding Tatum in the fourth quarter because he just didn't get the ball very often, which is, I don't understand that either, obviously, but it's back to the Joe Missoula thing. And, uh, you know, if, if they get eliminated here, you know, and I'm not a guy, you know, I mentioned this yesterday and several times here lately, I, I'm not the guy that's like the, when a team loses, when they're favored, that they should fire the coach. Uh, that's, that's, I seldom do that, actually. I think it's usually the player's fault for the most part or the general manager or whoever's in charge of structuring the team. But if, he, if they lose this series, he should not be coaching the Celtics after this series. He should not be returning next year. they got to do better than this. One of the things that I was monitoring here uh, was the three-point uh, shot, and it's just because the Heat, obviously, heading into these playoffs, didn't shoot the three all that often or all that well. In the playoffs, they certainly have turned it up a notch. The Celtics are a team that definitely shot the three. There were times during the 76er series that even Joe Missoula said, we got away from shooting the three and we need to shoot more threes at volume. So it's just something that I was monitoring heading into this particular series. Number Numbers-wise, the Heat 16 of 31, Celtics 10 of 29. So not only did the Heat take more attempts from behind the arc, but they also had a better make percentage as well. Uh, so that's just something that I was kind of monitoring uh, into this game. I know that you were kind of thinking that maybe the Celtics weren't going to shoot as many threes, uh, just kind of the way that they had played in that previous series. Well, once they go in big... I don't think there's any doubt about that. When they go, when Williams and Horford are both out there, they're almost for sure going to shoot fewer threes. Uh, but and I think that they should actually personally shoot fewer threes in most series. The thing that was most amazing about this game last night is, you know, as you mentioned, the Heat actually had more three-point field goal attempts, and that was the one thing that clearly changed in the second half. And this was mentioned by, uh, you know, both coaches. Even Missoula admitted that to some extent, not completely, uh, but some extent in the postgame. Several uh, Heat players talked about it. The biggest thing they did in the second half was take away the three-point line, etc. cetera. And uh, that, that, that was obviously a really big deal. Um, statistically speaking, I don't think anybody would have expected, you know, the Heat are going to have the advantage in the three-point shooting and the Celtics are going to dominate the paint which is those are the two things that actually statistically happened last night in game one. So how would you classify this game? A close game, a well-played game, battle of the stars, a mistake-filled game. How would you kind of look at game one? Well, it's not the battle of the stars because, you know, Tatum was missing in action, whether that's his fault or not. And I think it's more not, uh, you know, you know, he should at least, uh, you know, when Butler is lighting it up at the other end and is the best player on the floor by far, it shouldn't ever be by far. You know, I think that uh, actually after the game, Jalen Brown was the voice of reason for the Celtics, and, and he's a really smart guy, and I've mentioned that before. I think I even mentioned that when he was at Cal. Um, he's a really intelligent human being, 
And you know, the, the fact the Celtics should just not allow Mazzuo to even speak to anybody anymore because the more he talks, the more he looks like an idiot. Uh, and Jalen Brown sat there and answered the questions last night. He was not belligerent or confrontational to the media when they asked really good questions like Missoula was. And Brown was great after the game. And uh, he, he did a far better job, far better job explaining what happened to the Celtics in that game than head coach did. Uh, I thought heading into this game that the Heat had a good chance of taking game one. Certainly we were both on the side of the, the plus eight number, uh, but just kind of looking at how the Celtics have been so far at home, uh, the amount of rest that the Heat were going to have, game planning opportunities there, for the Heat felt like it was an opportunity for them to strike. Uh, also, just looking at the Celtics here, they won game one versus the Hawks in these playoffs, but they did lose game one versus the 76ers in these playoffs. So from the Heat side of things here, uh, they have to be happy to have set the tone. Uh, do you think that they come away, though, just happy if they do split 1-1? I don't think they do. I mean, yeah, they even meant that's another thing that was, you know, prominently discussed by the Heat players in the post game when they were asked a kind of a similar I don't forget how they exactly worded the question or how it was worded to especially you know Adebayo and uh, and Lowry who by the way are like a stand-up comedy routine between the two of them and they do these press conferences together after the game they're hysterical quite frankly it's it's that's a worth viewing the post game and, and if for no other reason you need to get a little chuckle uh, they're going to probably provide it for you when they're appearing together. Um, it's kind of like a, you know, like a, when a band breaks up, uh, uh, the band sometimes is not as good when they go solo. So I don't think they're as good in solo interviews as opposed to when they're together. But they've been together for two or three of these playoff series after after certain games, and they're really good. <laughs> so, um, and you can learn a whole lot if you watch these post game press conferences, especially if you're a little confused about. And I, I, everybody's confused sometimes about how some of these games go. I think you get a little better understanding at least what the approaches were from the teams and the players. And you can watch all the press conferences for the most part. Uh, you, actually, you really can watch every word of every press conference. If it's not on NBA TV, they run a lot of it. And what they uh, don't run or if they have to you know, cut to a live guest from the site of the game, yeah, you can go to NBA.com and, and watch the entire press conference of, say, a head coach or you know, if, if they had to cut short for – I forgot who their post-game guest was last night. They had to cut uh, – actually, they cut Spolster short. And uh, so I went and listened to the rest of him after that was all over with. But So if you really want to dive into this and listen to uh, NBA TV or NBA.com or a combination thereof, you can you know catch everything that everybody says after every game. Do you think that Brad Stevens should replace Joe Missoula moving forward? I didn't think Brad Stevens was that great of NBA coach, but he's like uh, you know, you know, the greatest coach of all time uh, compared to Joe Missoula. Anybody would do a better job right now coaching the Celtics than Joe Missoula. Uh, Anybody. For, for the Celtics here, uh, you know, turnover is obviously an issue here. Some things to clean up. Uh, get Jason Tatum the ball there in the fourth quarter. But they shouldn't come away completely discouraged, right? I think they should be completely discouraged. I'm sorry. Uh, but they're 4-4 four and four at home in the postseason. And they've had, you know, obviously you can all do the math. They've had eight games to figure this out. And they haven't figured it out. Well, the Heat 
have the 1-0 series advantage. The Nuggets have a 1-0 series advantage. Game two in the Western Conference Finals are tonight. We'll get into the Lakers and the Nuggets here on the other side of the break. We'll take your calls around 10.30 and 11.15. I don't know if I mentioned that at the top of the show. Calls, call time today at 10.30 and 11.15, 602-260-1060. We'll continue the NBA playoffs conversation with the Lakers and the Nuggets next. It is the Extra Point right here on KDOS AM 1060, online at KDOS1060.com and with the KDOS 1060 app, powered by Superbook Sports. More Extra Point next. Hey, Phoenix, Doug Gottlieb here. I'm bringing the best sports talk weekdays to you, 1 to 3 p.m., right here on KDUS AM 1060. Kim, Kayla Mortolaro with you up until noon today, as we typically do. Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. The game number two tonight in the Western Conference Finals. The Lakers are down 0-1 in Denver. We'll get into this a little bit more as well as part of our poll questions is the numbers. Lakers plus 5.5, Nuggets minus 5.5. Tips off at 5.30 p.m. tonight. Uh, but is the key for the Lakers here putting Rui Hachimura on Jokic and AD on Aaron Gordon because once this happened uh, in game number one, Davis was able to roam the paint a little bit more. Uh, He was able to pick up two blocks. He had two steals as well. Uh, So is this kind of some sort of secret weapon here for the Lakers? But also knowing this, the Nuggets have the opportunity to counter that move as well. Yeah, I don't think it's the key. I think it's certainly going to happen. And I know there's, uh, I forgot, is it Chris Haynes that reported today there's going to be a lineup change and it's speculated that the uh, Hachimura for Schroeder is going to be the, the lineup change. We talked about that uh, with Harrison Fagan from Silver Screen and Roll and during the sports zone today. That's kind of uh, assumed what the, that would be. I think it's, you know, I think we're going to see that. I don't think it's the key. I think the key is is you can't, I don't care who's guarding whom or however you're trying to defend, you can't allow 132 points and 55% shooting in one game and expect to win. Uh, For the Lakers here, does LeBron need to stop shooting threes? I think so, but I've been saying that for half a decade, maybe longer than a half a decade. Um, I think he definitely settles for threes. You know, that game got down to three. Uh, The 21-point lead got down to three. In the last two minutes the other night, and the Lakers had the ball down three, two consecutive possessions, and LeBron threw up a three, which wasn't close the first time, and he turned it over the second time. And, uh, you know, once again, I'm going to use the Doug Collins reference, uh, who I think is the best uh, NBA uh, analyst ever on television. He used to use the term fool's gold a lot. I think it's actually fool's gold when LeBron makes threes. But even when he misses them, uh, as Harrison pointed out in the last hour, it uh, doesn't seem to really deter him from shooting more of them. So uh, maybe it's not fool's gold or whatever, but he he definitely, I think for sure, he settles for threes more often. I think in this time of his career, I mean, he just can't play 48 minutes at both ends 
you know, you know, 40, you know, however many minutes he's playing, 40-plus for sure. Can't play full bore the whole game anymore. But, uh, you know, I think he could uh, choose his spots a little bit better. And, you know, the, the, the three that he missed, he settled for that. That was not with the shot clock at one second or something, and he was stuck with the ball and – Nobody was doing anything. He was he could he jacked that up when he didn't have to. You know, I seem to remember he did that in one of the games against the Warriors as well. Uh, just really early in the shot clock and and missed it. And so that seems to be, I guess, an mo right now. Yeah, um, I don't remember the Warriors play specifically, but uh, you know, it's it's you know, settling for you know three. I don't know if he's tired or what the deal is uh, at the uh, into some of these games. But he is, you know, the other thing that's kind of works against him in our discussion about this and this topic is that he's unstoppable when he just kind of like, you know, puts his head down and goes downhill, as they say, and beelines it to the basket. Uh, along those lines, uh, he was able to take advantage of Jamal Murray being on him uh, early and often in that game. So from a Nuggets perspective here, what do they have to do to make sure that Jamal Murray isn't attacked and exposed on defense? Don't put him on LeBron. Um, you know, whoever you consider to be the weakest perimeter player, whether you know that that's you know Schroeder starts and he's probably not going to start tonight if Hachimura Hachimura is actually the starter but yeah he's a good player offensively but I think uh, he's a lot easier to defend so you know having Aaron Gordon should be guarding LeBron in this series and yeah there that wasn't you know a lot of those times that that Murray ended up on LeBron was not were not switch situations that was actually the straight up defense when the possession began uh, you know, that it did happen a few times when there was a switch, but that, that cannot be, you know, Murray's primary defensive assignment cannot be LeBron. Uh, the Denver Nuggets have yet to lose a playoff game contested at home, and obviously that has certainly been a key for a player like a Michael Porter Jr., a key for an Aaron Gordon. I know he kind of struggled shooting the ball in game one. A key for Bruce Brown off of the bench is to be at home. Uh, they've played really well. Yeah, and also, well, a couple of those guys have played really well away from home too, uh, certainly against the Suns. Uh, that was the case in you know, game six, as it turned out. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I've never quite bought in, and I know that uh, there's plenty of examples, especially in this postseason, that go against this. I've never quite bought into the thing just because, you know, teams playing at home that their role players automatically play better. I don't think that that's accurate over the years, but it certainly has been in this postseason. Uh, so we'll answer this question, what we think is going to happen around 1130 today. On the other side of the break, we'll take your calls if you'd like to join the show. 602-260-1060 is the number. In addition to that, we alluded to this yesterday when Bob was having his NBA uh, draft prospects conversation. It was John Hollinger of The Athletic. He wrote up his top prospects, thought we could go through some of those and where we finally land on the first Pac-12 player on the list as well so that's coming up on the other side of the break but 602-260-1060 is the number if you'd like to join the program it's the extra point on this thursday may 18th right here on kdus am 1060 online at kdus 1060.com and with the kdus 1060 app powered by superbook sports
KDUS AM 1060 is the home to the Dan Patrick Show, the Doug Gottlieb Show, and Sports Map Radio. Catch all the sports content here on AM 1060. Justin Thomas just draining a 2025 footer for par, giving a little fist pump as he remains at one under par in a tie for fourth place right now with Scotty Scheffler. Victor Hovland on top of the PGA Championship leaderboard at two under. Uh, We'll certainly get into a little bit more about the PGA Championship as the show goes on. It is the Extra Point right here on KDOS AM 1060. Follow along with us online at KDOS1060.com and with the KDOS 1060 app powered by Superbook Sports. Bob Kemp, Kayla Mortolaro with you. And, And yesterday, Bob had a deep dive about the NBA draft lottery that took place. The Spurs receiving the first over overall selection so more than likely victor uh women oh gosh we're gonna have to do better with victor here victor from france victor wem right ben victor w. <laughs> yeah don't feel bad i mean as i mentioned yesterday within two hours of the espn coverage the pre you know lottery whatever you call that the pre lottery draft discussion or whatever but they had like two hours before they actually disclosed the results. Three different people on ESPN pronounced his name, at least three, uh, pronounced his name differently. So who knows? So it's Victor. Good uh, news. He has a good first, uh, you well, know, you know, quick first name, and we can all remember Victor. Uh, yes, absolutely. So when it comes to looking into this particular NBA draft class, it's kind of uh, you know Victor's in a class of his own. And so John Hollinger of the Athletic wrote up uh, an article about some prospects, and I thought we could go through uh, some of these prospects here. And he has Tier One Victor, and he talks about how he has some buttery jumpers. He has tremendous ball skills. He shot 83% from the foul line. That's pretty darn impressive no matter who you are, let alone someone who's 7'4". Victor's also 19 years old. Uh, John, also in in regards to his analysis and trying to figure out prospects and things, you have to have some critical analysis behind it. Uh, He goes in to say that he's skinny, and if that limits what he can do on the block, he's mostly looking for jumpers and struggles establishing post position. Uh, But but then goes into asking the question here, how many players this tall have played 1,000 career games? And the answer here is zero. But no one in this draft is even close to what he can do, by and far away, better than anyone else. So 10 years of him is better than 15 years of anyone else. <laughs> that's good. I think that's a good way to phrase it. I've only seen highlights. I've never seen him play a whole game. I don't know if it really would matter if I've ever seen him play a whole game because, you know, the competition has been, you know, better than, you know, certainly some college players, but, you know, not going to be what he's going to be facing in the NBA. I don't really, I would shouldn't, shouldn't say I don't care about him not if he's 19 years old. And, you know, there are some at 19 year old guys that it's amazing how, you know, their bodies are, you know, physically developed at that point. But, uh, you know, he's going to get stronger as time goes on. Just just kind of the – assuming he's a a normal, you know, male human being that gets gets stronger. And, you know, I assume that's going to be an emphasis also. So that's – I think that that's a 
the least of uh, people's concerns long term that I understand the thought process at least going in. So it has to be mentioned. But if that's if this is still a problem in like three years and he hasn't shown physical growth, then I think that that would be a, a legitimate question at that point. Uh, then he goes into tier two. Uh, that becomes Scoot Henderson, who's 19, six foot two, point guard position, uh, needs to improve his outside shot. Shot just 32.4% from three, 76.4% from the foul line. He settled for pull up twos in the G League, uh, but he is a really good defender and a really good distributor of the ball. Yeah, I've never seen Scoot play either, unfortunately. Uh, there's actually going to be four guys, I'm guessing, in the top ten here that I've never that I haven't seen play. Uh, but, you know, that seems to be the conventional wisdom of Scoot. I did see Scoot in a couple of interviews the other day, and he does not lack for confidence. And then I read a quote this morning that he thinks he should still be the number one player picked in the draft. And it's not going to – that ain't happening, but uh, – you know, good for him that he has that much confidence in himself. But uh, that seems to be a uh, kind of a uh, universal scouting report of Scoot at this point. Now, he's going out on a limb here with his third overall player in this draft uh, in Tier 2, and that's Cam Whitmore, who's 18-6-6 from yeah. Villanova, and basically just banking on tons of athleticism here. Great defender, and you could get him inside your program and mold him uh, because he's so young and athletic. I don't necessarily think he's going out on a limb here. Um, you know, we had Isaac on yesterday, and he loves Whitmore also. Whitmore, it was hard to kind of judge him at Villanova for a couple of reasons. One, he was injured some to start the season and missed some time. And also, Villanova did not have its complete team intact until literally like February 1st, roughly, before they had their team. And once they actually got their team out there, they were much better and you know, they, they made a, you know, at least some of us, and that was incorrect as it turns out. Some of us thought they could win the Big East tournament because they had their enti- entire team intact. But Whitmore certainly improved during the season. Yeah, he was considered the top high school player two years ago before his freshman year at Villanova. And I understand why he was so highly thought of because the man has a skill set. There's no doubt about that. Uh, number four on this list, Brandon Miller, 26-9, Alabama. After Victor, he might be the safest player basketball-wise. Obviously, teams will need to do due diligence uh, for what's going on with Brandon Miller off the court. He's a great shooter, handles the ball really well. Uh, John Hollinger goes on to compare him to Chris Middleton or Richard Lewis from a standpoint that he could be the second-best ba- player on a good team. Uh, calls him an ordinary finisher and lacking some explosion and craft around the rim, but says that uh, uh, certainly he's probably going out on a limb picking Whitmore's upside over Miller's certainty. Yeah, I can buy that. I, I get that whole analysis there. Uh, you know, Miller, I think another thing that really benefited him from his playing days at Alabama, the you know the one year he was there, is that they run – uh, they're, they're, I don't they usually use this term for the NFL, but they run kind of a pro-style offense, so to speak. Uh, and he handled the ball a lot, too. I mean, he can certainly distribute the ball. I mean, he's got ball skills that are NBA level, inarguable and NBA level. You know, you know, off the court stuff, that's a whole different issue. Um, 
I would have a uh, – I thought that he and Alabama handled uh, that situation every way possibly you – know, they, they were wrong in every possible way. Uh, and what the, you know should have happened as far as that whole scenario, uh, you know the night of the incident, obviously and beyond, and the way that they you know, dealt in some cases or didn't deal with the media in other cases, they they screwed the whole thing up. Uh, number five, Anthony Black, nineteen six seven from Arkansas. Hollinger says that Black reminds him of Jason Kidd, at times a big, smart, defensively active guard who impacts winning in so many other ways uh, that the lack of jump shot becomes secondary. Yeah, that's interesting because I kind of have a similar opinion. I, I was nobody was more ignorant, wrong, however you'd like to, whatever phrase you'd like to use or words. Nobody was more wrong about Jason Kidd than I, who I heard a lot about back in the day. I was living in Vegas then, and I was really in the, you know, they, they, there's a lot. If you live in Vegas and you like basketball, you know, every high school player that, you know, can you know, basically, you know, breathe, chew gum, and play basketball simultaneously is there for some kind of tournament. And most of them are more they're more than one time. Uh, and I saw Jason Kidd after I heard about him, uh, but you know the reputation was you know sky high, and I just you know, wonder. I remember I'm pretty sure my Vegas talk radio days. I must have said at some point, "What's the big deal here?" or something along those lines. And the fact that he just didn't make a jump shot, I think, kind of you know, spooked me a little bit. And I think it sounds like Hollinger is still thinking that this. You know, same thing here, but you know, so I'm the wrong person to ask in any comparison to Jason Kidd because I was so wrong before. Tier three from John Hollinger with The Athletic here. It's the Thompson twins. He has Amen Thompson at number six, who's 26 foot seven. Along with his twin brother, they've spent two years at Overtime Elite, which is a new program that doesn't have a whole lot of historical reference for how their games will translate to the NBA. So a bit of a wild card here. Uh, but... Uh, Amen can handle the ball and jumps out of the gym, according to Hollinger. Struggles with defense, gambles too much, and needs to develop a pull-up game. Uh, he kind of says, "Could he be a six-foot-seven Rajon Rondo?" Oh, is that a good thing? <laughs> I don't <laughs> so know. I, I guess it is. Oh, these are two more guys, and yeah, you know, fortunately, is these are the other guys that I mentioned. I, I thought we were going to have here in this top ten that I hadn't seen before. So I'm not real sure, and I really haven't heard much about these guys, quite frankly, until the last week or so when I you know, we got closer to the, the lottery and I started looking at some lists and mock drafts and so forth. And I've, I had never heard of this school that they went to until like 10 days ago. Uh, the uh, His twin brother, Osser, Thompson, also 26 foot seven. He comes in at number seven. Uh, I guess the comparison here is that Amen is just a little bit better than Osser, uh, but he goes in on to say maybe trade down, take Osser, and you're getting 99% of Amen. Moving into tier four, a number eight on this list is Derek Lively, the second, 19, seven foot one. Uh, he does have the question how can you justify drafting a rim protecting center who averaged five points per game? He can also defend the perimeter. He did have some foul issues in college, though. He has no post game, and so you'd like to see him have some more dominance on the glass. 
Totally agree with that whole thing. He was also injured quite a bit at Duke last season, including at the start of the season. So, yeah, in the off season, I'm not sure how much that was affected by his uh, injury to start the year. But, you know, we all knew about him before the season started because, yeah, he was, if not the number one, number two high school guy coming out a year ago. I understand the fascination, though, because when he did play, yeah, they didn't run plays for him and with good reason on the offensive end, but he was just incredible defending the rim and, and you know, rebounding, and uh, those are two big deals, but you got to have some kind of offensive game, right? So I, I have a tough time trying to figure out exactly. I think he needs to go to the right team that has a you know an, off- an explosive offense that will take care of uh, to overcome, I should say, overcome his offensive efficiencies at least early in his career. Number nine on this list, Taylor Hendricks, nineteen six nine, shot thirty nine point six percent from three last season, seventy eight point two percent from the foul line. Hollinger says that he has a, a left hand lean on his shots while pulling the ball from the left side of his body. So uh, that certainly could potentially create some technique issues here. He's lacking one on one shot creation and scoring and post up opportunities might be limited, uh, but can block shots as a secondary rim protector and keep small smaller guards from getting past him yeah what i've seen i just um, i think that this is an overrated player and i've seen him in other lists too uh, i was surprised when i first saw him on the list but uh you know maybe i'll be wrong this would be like uh you know 20 years from now i'll be looking back and saying this is kind of like my jason kidd example from the mid 90s when kidd was the most acclaimed high school player and i didn't get it Number 10 on the list, we're still in tier four. Kobe Boofkin, 19, six foot four. Hollinger says that he actually went to see Michigan play Ohio State, wanted to see Jet Howard and Bryce Sensabaugh, and came away more impressed with Boofkin out of that game than he watched. Uh, maybe he can play point guard all the time with his combination of handle and passing, bounces off the floor quickly, and can surprise opponents by blocking the shot of bigger players, has a high steal rate as well. Once he gains some more weight, should be able to guard the switches that sounds fair even though you know there were a lot of michigan games you didn't even know he was on the floor and he was on the floor uh, i don't know if that was you know, i don't think that was entirely his fault uh, and uh, i really like Jawan howard i know i'm a, an ohio state guy but when they had the fab five when he was a player uh, he was uh, the, i thought the guy that was just you know, the, the, the the guy that held that team together Certainly, um, you know, Howard was highly thought of when he was an assistant coach, when he was with the Miami Heat, by the way. Uh, I learned from Eric Spolster and Pat Riley, I'm sure some. Uh, but I didn't think that Michigan, that they should have been better last season than they were. And the fact that they just had too many players that were just wildly inconsistent, that might have been. They just had they, they had a couple of guys that, you know, you know, Boofkin kind of calls in this category jacked up some shots that they shouldn't have been jacking up. Uh, so then it, I'll make you read his article here to get 10 through 15 because we'll skip to tier five, which is the 16th player here. And that's the first Pac-12 player on the list and the only Pac-12 player on the list. That's Jaime Jaquez, six foot seven. Plenty of reasons, according to Hollinger here, to cross off Jaquez as he's a mediocre long range shooter. He's 22 years old, struggles in one on one defense on the perimeter. But he says Jaquez 
just flat out knows how to play the game. He has a lot of elite role player characteristics, good passer with low turnover rate, and has a knack for help defense and rebounds like a four. Uh, it wouldn't be surprising if he falls to the second round, but based upon this particular draft, maybe he does sneak into the first round. I think that's an exceptionally accurate assessment of Jaquez, uh, who I really like a lot. Also, I'm not sure why, because you know UCLA had some, you know, they had a couple of stretches. You know, they had a couple of stretches where they were the best team in college basketball last year, and had Jalen Clark not been injured. I think that they were definitely a Final Four or a national championship team. Uh, but you know, when everybody was there, it seemed like that they were a little uncertain as what they wanted to do at the offensive end sometimes. They were never unsure at the defensive end. But uh, you know, like Hawk has, was kind of uh, – he just didn't have enough long stretches of dominance. So I think he's a really good NBA role player. I'd be really surprised if he were an NBA difference maker at any time of his career. Uh, so then he continues on. I believe there's 22 in total. That's from John Hollinger of The Athletics. So you can uh, find out more about all of that from him. Uh, if you're curious about the NBA draft prospects and obviously with a month to go, uh, there's still going to be plenty more to uncover about uh, who's going to be drafted and where moving forward in this upcoming NBA draft. We wrap up our number one on the other side of the break. It is the extra point right here on KDOS AM 1060 online at KDOS 1060.com and with the KDOS 1060 app powered by Superbook Sports. Suggest you download the KDOS 1060 app, register and follow along for your chance at listener rewards right now there's a 100 gift certificate so follow along with the instructions to see if you're eligible to be this month's winner of the 100 gift certificate but one more segment to go for hour one it's next Interact with Bob Kemp's poll question on KDUS1060.com. That's KDUS1060.com. And while you're there, check out Bob Kent's bottom line at KDUS1060.com. Wrapping up our number one here on KDOS AM 1060 online at KDOS1060.com and with the KDOS 1060 app powered by Superbook Sports. The PGA Championship is underway from Oak Hill Country Club. So we had talked about weather potentially being an issue with Alex Myers from Golf Digest in our preview segment yesterday and uh, the fact that it could potentially be quite chilly. And Bob, you had asked me uh, who's... (laughs) Whose standards are we evaluating chili? Because uh, we know that I tend to be a little on the cold side often. Uh, Here's how cold it was. This morning, there ended up being a one hour and 50 minute frost delay. That qualifies. (laughs) Doesn't matter whose standards we're talking about at that point. Very good. So play is currently underway. I do believe it's supposed to get to be a high today of like 64 degrees. And I will say this here, depending upon what time you teed off, obviously the frost delay certainly helps to warm things up. So you're not out there in the worst of it. But when it isn't warm, uh, that does impact you as a golfer because, you know, uh, most 
people play the game with a sense of feel, and that feel comes from your hands. And when you can't feel your hands, it kind of makes you know a, a disconnect between you and what you're trying to do. And when you're playing a course like Oak Hill, as we talked about, how just treacherous things are around the greens, being able to be precise with your short iron shots and your short game and your putting, uh, you want to be able to feel your hands and have that kind of sense of, of feeling. It's going to be a tough challenge, and it's being shown with scores not super low as it is right now. Out in front, it is Ryan Fox. He's three under par through 14. Then you have Corey Connors and Victor Hovland at two under par and a tie for second. Then Sahith Tagala, Scotty Scheffler, who was one of the odds-on favorites at uh, – one under par, as well as Justin Thomas, who is the defending champion as well at one under par. When we're looking at some of those bigger names, John Rahm, he's two over through 10. Uh, Rory McIlroy is two over through 12. So certainly those top of the board players are going to have to kind of turn things around as the round continues on. Brooks Kepka is even through 12, and that's good enough here for a tie for ninth. If you remember, he's one of the guys that we do have on our board. We'll continue to chat PGA Championship throughout the rest of the show, but we do have hour number two coming up on the other side of the break. It is the extra point right here on KDUS AM 1060.